Do you remember when we were kids? I mean, I, I know some of you don't have to remember back as far as I do, but do you remember when we were kids and we'd be at school, the teacher would leave the room. Maybe she had to go down to the office or whatever, but the teacher would leave the room and the whole place would change, wouldn't it? Instead of being that quiet academic setting, all of a sudden, the place just becomes a jungle or a, a, a playground. As Once the teacher's out of the room, man, we just went wild, right? We were running up and down the aisle. We were throwing stuff. We were hollering and screaming and laughing. We were, we were breaking all the rules, right? And usually there was some kid that got stuck with the job of watching through the window in the doorway so we could see when the teacher was coming. And that kid was kind of like a watch, uh, a, a lookout, right? And the kid would see the teacher coming and turn around and yell to the rest of us, hey, here she comes, here she comes. Everybody'd get quiet. We'd run back to our seats and we'd just sit there like nice little angels, right? And she'd come in the door and slam the door behind her and she'd let us know that she could hear us all the way down the hall and we hadn't gotten by with anything. It was just funny how behavior changed when teacher wasn't there. Well, Paul had an idea that that's kind of the way we are. It's just something about our human makeup that, that we kind of change our behavior based on whether or not the authority figure is watching. Well, he, he knew that that was a part of us, and so he actually included uh, a reference to that in his letter to the Philippians. We're walking through the book of Philippians together, and our theme is choose joy. I think that's the theme for the whole book of Philippians, choose joy. And we're uh, walking through the book verse by verse as we go, and today we come to the last part of chapter 1. We're in chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. And listen to what Paul says. I, th I find it very interesting. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. He says, whether I come and see you or if I'm absent from you, I'm expecting the same behavior from you. You know, he didn't know for sure if he was going to be able to see them again. And he didn't know if he was going to see them again. He didn't know when that might happen. And so he's, he's kind of saying now, now listen, I, I'm going to be listening. I'm going to have people tell me about how you guys are doing. And I want to be able to hear that you have kept it together, whether I'm there or not. Parents, you may remember some of those times that you, uh, you left your kids with a babysitter. And at the end of the evening, you'd come home and you'd ask the babysitter, well, was, uh, uh, were they good? And babysitter kind of roll her eyes and say, uh, yeah, sure, you know, uh, okay. And, you know, we, we expect to hear from the babysitter, how did the children behave? 
I want to know. I want to report. Every once in a while, the, the parents might put that responsibility on the children before they leave. Instead of making the babysitter feel awkward at the end of the evening, some parents would talk to the kids before they left, and they would say, now when I get back, I'm going to ask the babysitter how you behaved, and I expect to hear that you were good this evening while we were gone. Paul is saying, you know, I don't know when I'm going to see you guys again. I don't know if I'm going to be able to see you soon or if, or if ever. But there's something I expect of you, whether I'm there or not. Why? Because it's not really about Paul. You see what he said? He said, I, let your manner of life, the way you live, your behavior, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether I'm there or not, it's not about Paul, it's about Christ and his gospel. And Paul is saying, let your lives be a way that reinforces that gospel. Live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's, a, there's a, a, an interesting, a great Greek word there, that word that says, let your manner of life be worthy. That manner of life is a word that means citizenship. Let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Citizenship, how you live as a citizen. Well, that would be a little confusing unless we understood Paul's perspective that he made clear for us in the third chapter of his letter. In Philippians 3 and 20, he clarifies what he means by citizenship. He says in Philippians 3 and 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying to the Philippians, y'all are citizens of heaven, so act like it. As citizens of heaven, you have been saved by Jesus Christ. You have, you have experienced the gospel, and the gospel has changed you. Now, you take that gospel to others, and you back it up by how you live. Well, he says that whether I'm there or not, I want to hear that you guys are living up to that expectation. So what is it specifically that he wants to hear about? What, what does it look like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? He calls them to that and he says he's going to listen to, to find out he's going to hear one way or another if they're doing it. But what would he listen for or what would someone watch for to, to see, to determine if they are in fact living in a manner worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? Well, he fleshes it out for us, and I want to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at it with you. What would it mean if you and I lived our lives in a way that was worthy of the gospel? Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to live our, way, live our lives in such a way that we deserve the gospel. 
that defeats the whole purpose of the gospel. The gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means, good news, that Jesus Christ came even though we didn't deserve it. He came and loved us and died for us that now we might have full, abundant, eternal life. That's the gospel. He's not saying live in a way that you deserve that gospel. That never happens. It's, we can only experience the gospel through grace, which means God gives us something we don't deserve. So he is not saying live in a way that means that, that proves that you deserve it. He's saying once you have received it, once you've experienced it, it ought to change you. So live in a way that demonstrates that change to the world around you. What would that look like? As the church, there should be something about us that lets people know we've been changed by that gospel. The first one, the first part of what it might look like to live in this manner is that we would learn to stand firm. To stand firm. Do you hear that at the end of verse 27? So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. He means that he expects of them and thereby expects of us to be strong. Hold your ground in spite of opposition. The gospel has changed you and it is worth Standing your ground, defending it, even when those around you don't understand the gospel. They don't understand you now that you've been changed by it. But you stand firm. You be strong in spite of opposition. Don't give up. Don't retreat, but to stand firm. That same phrase is a phrase that Paul likes, and, and, and he uses it to speak to many of the churches that he started. You can find that very same um, uh, exhortation to stand firm. You can find it in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, in Galatians, and Ephesians. Matter of fact, let me show you in Ephesians chapter 6. You may remember Ephesians 6 is where he talked about putting on the whole armor of God. Uh, he says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he says, after he explains the armor, he says to them in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, I've always loved that verse because it challenged me to think a lot. He's, he says, after you've done everything, stand firm. So it's like that is the ultimate demonstration of faith, to stand firm. After you've done everything else, you put on the armor, you live the life, you, you serve the Lord, you, you obeyed Him, you, you, you believed Him, you followed Him, you did everything ultimate statement of faith, he says, after you've done it all, stand firm. So being strong in our faith is what we're called to do, to, to hold our ground, 
Don't let the world push you away from your faith in Jesus Christ. Stand firm. When the rains come and the winds blow, stand firm. When a pandemic changes your world into chaos, stand firm. When you are lonely and you just want to be with friends and family again, stand firm. When you're tired and frustrated and you're ready to give up, stand firm. When anger and hatred seem to rule the day, you stand firm. When you are ridiculed, oppressed, or even persecuted for your faith, stand firm. Just like the sequoia trees that we talked about a few weeks ago, we don't have to stand firm alone. And that's the next thing that I want you to see as we look at what it might look like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. We stand firm, but we don't have to stand firm alone. Look at the second thing he says. He says back in verse 27 again, he says that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. You see, we can stand firm together. In other words, the next thing, the next uh, aspect of living a life worthy of the gospel is that we can be unified. If the church, you and I, are going to live a life that's, that's, that's worthy of the gospel, that defends it, then we can stand firm and we can be unified. He, he says that he wants us to to stand firm in one spirit and one mind. Now understand this is this is little s spirit. This is not this is not capital S like in the Holy Spirit. This is little s spirit. This is the way we use that that word spirit uh, in in other ways. You know, a lot of times we might say uh, I can't be there in person, but I'll be there in spirit. Uh, perhaps we, we would say that somebody um, would apologize in a spirit of humility. Or maybe someone would give a gift in a spirit of generosity. Uh, or maybe we watch Hallmark movies in the spirit of Christmas. We use that word for spirit to mean our motivation or our attitude. That's the way he's using it here. Yes, stand firm, but you don't have to stand firm alone. I want you to stand firm as you are together in one spirit, one motivation, one attitude, and one mind. I want you to be unified, he says to the church, in your attitude and your way of thinking. One mind. He calls us to be in agreement. Understand, he's, he's, not saying, he's not saying that we have to be the same. In this sense, unity is not sameness. It's about purpose. Have the same motivation. Be of the same mindset. Be thinking the same way. 
It's about our purpose. A football team is not made up of the same positions, different positions, but the same purpose. An orchestra does, does, in an orchestra, everybody doesn't play the same instrument. They all play different instruments, but they play it together for a common goal, a purpose. In a choir, not everyone sings the same parts, but together they make a harmony that, that takes them to the same purpose. The church in the New Testament is referred to with a Greek word, koinonia. And koinonia means fellowship. It, uh, it describes sharing life together, having things in common. Friends, I, I, I want us to understand something that I think many people forget today. In the New Testament, church never, ever was about 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Church was about fellowship one with another. It was about sharing life. It was about being family. We gather when we can on Sunday morning, but that's just the beginning. The rest of the week we are still family. And Paul challenges us to strive to be of one spirit and one mind, have the same attitude and the same mindset or the same way of thinking. He wants us to be unified on purpose. Next Sunday, we'll move on to chapter 2. And when we do, these are the verses that we'll start with. Let me give you just a quick preview. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He says the way that you can complete my joy, remember the book is about joy. Paul says the way you can complete my joy is when you guys really get it together and when you keep it together. How can we as a church live in a manner worthy of the gospel? It begins when we stand firm and when we are unified. And those two things logically take us to the third one, and that is that we work together. We work together. You see, he continues here in verse seven, uh, 27, so that whatever, uh, whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He wants to hear that the church is working together, striving side by 
side. That word for striving side by side is another great Greek word. Uh, soon athleo. Soon athleo. It's a cool word because soon means with. And the other word, athleo, does that sound familiar? It's the word that we get our athlete from. Soon with athleo, athlete, or really it means to strive. So he's saying, you guys want to strive together like a team. Athletes working together side by side. That teamwork is the way this is going to happen. The way that the church is going to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. It's going to happen when you guys learn to work together as a team. One of the, one of the things that we need to be really careful about is it's too easy for us to kind of sit back and let one or two people do all the work of the church. It's real easy for us to sit back and say, somebody else is going to pick that up. Somebody's going to take care of it. When instead he says, if we're going to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, we've got to stand firm and be united and work together. The ministry of the church requires hard work. Did you notice he's using a word striving? Striving means to work hard at something. Church never was intended to be an easy one hour a week experience. Church is not really about what happens here in the building as much as it is about how we work together to, to, to represent Christ and to share His good news with our community. It's hard work, it's a struggle, it's striving, but we don't struggle against each other, beloved. Soon Athaleo, with we strive. Side by side we strive. We don't strive against, we don't struggle against each other. Instead, our battle is against the opponents of the gospel. Anything or anyone that would hinder the spreading of the gospel, the telling of the good news, anything that would come in its way, that is who we oppose. We work together to get that gospel to the world around us and specifically to our community. What happens so often in the church is we forget that we're supposed to be struggling together and we end up struggling against one another. And as soon as that begins to happen in the church, we are no longer living in a way that is, that is worthy of the gospel. As he speaks of our striving together against any opponents of the gospel, look at what he says in the next verse, verse 28. And not, he, he's expecting to hear that they are not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So he says, I expect to hear not only that you are striving together against any opponent of the gospel, but 
that as you're doing that, you're not afraid of those opponents. Because you know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so whatever is keeping you as a church from accomplishing God's will and sharing the gospel with your community, you can stand firm, you can work together in a way that says we're not afraid to face these challenges and these difficulties. You see, we do not fail because we come up against opposition. We do fail when we oppose each other or when we let fear keep us from the battle. We continue in that verse 28. He, he made that interesting statement. Did you hear it at the end? This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What is he talking about, this sign? What he's saying is when there is opposition and the church stands firm and they uh, work together against that opposition, well then that serves as a testimony. And it demonstrates that those who are opposed to the gospel have not experienced it. They're on the outside, if you will. That they are at enmity still with God. And it reminds everyone that the folks who are standing up for the gospel have experienced it and therefore have received the salvation that God gives them. He says, but it's a picture of your salvation and that from God. That takes me to something that's sometimes a little uncomfortable, but it needs to be said. And that is this that you can buy books and you can listen to radio shows and you can watch preachers on TV who will tell you that if you trust Jesus enough, your struggles will end. But beloved, I love you enough to make sure you hear what Paul is saying. And he says, if you trust Jesus enough, then you will be on the front lines of the struggle. Not that life's going to get easy for you. He says, he says, if you really live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel, then that is going to put you on the front lines in that spiritual battle. And you will face different kinds of opposition but you can stand firm and you can face it together. And it will always be worth the trouble. In verse 29, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. See, the Christian life is not supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and, and everything's pumpkin pie and, and, and wonderful times. That's not scriptural at all. Oh, that'll sell a bunch of books. And it'll make your TV show get great ratings. It's just not biblical. The Bible says when you take this stuff seriously 
and you're really willing to trust in Christ to give, his, to give your life to Him since He gave His for you, if you give yours to Him, then man, you're, you're going to wind up on the front lines. And, and listen to how he said that in verse 29. It is granted to you. What is that? It means it's a gift. It is granted to you not only to believe, but also suffer for his sake. So it's a gift. It's an opportunity not only to believe, but it's, a, it's an opportunity to have the, the chance to suffer. What? Yeah, that's the fourth part that I want us to make sure we see today. As the church, as we live in a way that is, that is worthy of the gospel, then a part of that includes that we will suffer confidently. We stand firm. We can be united. We work together. And we suffer confidently. Now, make sure you understand that every human being suffers. Every human being suffers. The question is, will your suffering have meaning? Here in verse 29, he says, It is granted to you for the sake of Christ. There's a purpose. There's a meaning that Christ can be glorified and honored when we suffer on behalf of the gospel. For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. See, it's not just everyday suffering that he's talking about, but it's suffering on behalf of Christ. When you take a stand, if that brings opposition, see that as a blessing. Because it signifies that you're on God's side. And that suffering then is a way that you get to share with Jesus, who, by the way, suffered more than any of us ever will. He suffered for us. So the opportunity to suffer for his gospel is actually a blessing. It is granted to us the opportunity to serve in that meaningful way. It's an honor to be included among those ranks. Verse 30 he concludes this chapter as he says, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He, he says, uh, uh, it, it, it is granted to you not only to believe, but you'll suffer for his sake as you're engaged in the same conflict. Paul says, I've been fighting this battle a long time. I've been in this spiritual warfare thing a long time. I stand for Jesus, and some people don't like that. I stand for Jesus, and the enemy doesn't like it. And so you've seen me in the struggle, and you've heard that I'm still in the struggle. Even in prison, I'm struggling with this. I just invite you to join me in the battle. And what an honor it will be to serve the Lord Jesus Christ together. You see, that's what he means when we talk about the theme of this book is to choose joy. It's all about how you choose to see things. You can choose to think only of yourself, to focus on what's not fair, to be preoccupied with problems, or 
You can choose to see your sufferings as an opportunity to share with others and to spread the gospel. You can choose self-centered sorrow or you can choose joy. Because I love you, I'm praying today that you will choose joy.